The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor-teacher, Harry Reeder. If you'll take your Bibles and please turn with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Well, it was not lost on me uh, today that as I, uh, hopefully with appropriate humor and humility, encourage people to uh, record their fascination with uh, with uh, Super Bowl Sunday, and they could go back. I don't know why people just don't do that anyway. You get to run through all the commercials and don't have to watch those. And uh, so, although some people watch that to get see the commercials, from what I understand. Uh, but anyway, uh, so I, it was not lost on me that I asked people to make a good, solid decision to come to what we used to call when I was growing up, night church. And then come on to night church. And, um, and, and I just really wanted to appeal to you. We're dealing with death tonight. So come on to night church. What an appealing subject to draw people, uh, into the, uh, into gathered worship on Sunday evening. But I also have to do a, just a little bit of cleanup, uh, that I think is necessary. I want you to know, now please try to follow this. Last Sunday, as I was dealing with the issue of addressing temptation out of the life of Joseph, and in general, and sexual temptation in particular, I'd made the comment that with somewhat uh, fearfulness and trepidation because of the enormous witness of the life of Joseph as recorded in Scripture, I actually wanted you to learn from what he did, but realize that I think there were two things he didn't do that he should have done that might have saved him some trouble, but yet God sovereignly and providentially uh, used that trouble anyway. But for you and me, I wanted to go ahead and give you those two. Now, uh, I want you to also know, due to the wonderful uh, servant's heart and expertise of Frank Barker III, uh, I was able to go up to the... A recording studio this week and take these two and we put it into last Sunday night's sermon. So you can actually get it on that sermon now uh, that he has done that. So now it's about a two-hour sermon, and that ought to encourage everybody. And uh, so it's available there. Uh, but it's available on one sermon now. But uh, for you, I wanted to go ahead and give it to you straight up tonight, and that's this. You noticed how one of the points that I made is that it is arrogance to think you can outthink or outresolve Satan. That's arrogant. Therefore, we learn from Joseph, uh, we pointed out about three things. Uh, number one, when she tempted him, he immediately made his declaration verbally. And it was a declaration of about five issues. I cannot do this and sin against God. I cannot sin against my master. And I cannot sin against you. I cannot sin against the marriage covenant. And I cannot do this great wickedness. And so he declared that, got himself on record up front, and, uh, and he declared it. Uh, so that was one thing that he did. Um, secondly, he realized that when the when she finally continued to come at after him time and time again, one of the things that was so crucial for him was to uh, to was to uh, stay focused on serving the Lord by serving his master. The third thing was that uh, one of the third things that I wanted to point out to you was that when she came after him or to seduce him once again, he fled. He was even willing to part with a garment. And uh, this was the guy that wouldn't part with the garment that had been made for him, even though it cost him with his brothers. But for this, he was willing to part with that garment. And you see the quick thinking of Potiphar's wife taking that garment 
and using it for concocted evidence against him that eventually sent him to jail. Now, I'm not going back over my sermon, so rest, uh, but I wanted to get those out to you. What are the two things I think were left undone? Here's what they were. I believe that Joseph, uh, unknowingly, I don't think that Joseph thought his commitments, that he was stronger than Satan working through the temptress, I do not think that he thought he was smarter, uh, but you can notice that Satan, through those whom he uses, uh, continues incessantly. Satan doesn't stop. You remember, who was it that withstood the temptations of Satan? Jesus. And it said that he left him for a while. Satan is incessantly committed to bringing you to sin, to bringing sin to you with temptations. Now, you've got a sovereign God who is at work, but he is relentless. And I believe that was the mistake that Joseph made. He thought it was one and done. She came and then he made his declaration. He went on verdict. He made it public. And I think in his mind, okay, now this issue has been dealt with. But he did not realize, as the text tells you, she would continue day after day after day. So my friends, never think on this side of eternity that Satan is going to leave you alone with his schemes, his snares, and his servants. Thirdly, secondly, I believe that Joseph... For whatever reason, at least one time, and I think other times, but at least one time, allowed himself to be alone with the one that wanted to bring him uh, to demise. And that's why, if you'll go through all of these offices where our pastors are, every one of them have windows. I don't ever want them to be alone. It's not because I don't trust their heart. It's that I don't trust Satan. And I don't trust how quick thinking people who want to bring uh, sin and charges and accusations against people can function. Uh, that's why uh, that's why we have uh, uh, so funny. I'm not going to mention one of our younger staff people. I saw them riding on top of a car uh, from the barn up here uh, on top of the car. And I said, what are you doing and he, he said, well, Pastor, you said we can't be in the car with another woman by ourselves. And she's driving, so I'm just riding up on top. I am not in that car. Now, boy, that's commitment right there. I'm telling you, that is commitment. I was ready to give him a raise right then. And then I was ready to spank him for not thinking better. But, uh, I mean, walk up the hill for crying out loud. But so... But anyway, so um, my, my point is that uh, we can never give Satan an opportunity. Never give him an opportunity. I call it putting in your life obstacles to sin that become stepping stones to righteousness. And I believe that's one, is that there are certain, there are certain commitments you need to make in order to Avoid the appearance of evil, the seductions of evil, and the, uh, and the contemplations of evil, as well as the possible uh, construing of evil that actually would not be true, but you don't have an answer for it. It's a, it becomes a he said, he said, or he said, she said. So that was one. That's what I wanted to get to you, uh, and not. And unfortunately, that was left on the cutting room floor last week. Now back to death. I know you want to get back there, so I want you to get with me. Get back there with me. Um, look in James chapter two. But before I go there, Pastor, uh, why are you doing? You'll notice the title for this series: "If I Should Die Before I Wake." Can anybody figure, figure, uh, finish that? Now, did you learn that prayer growing up like I did? If I should die before I wake, I... Listen, that like many, many children's statements is fantastically insightful and theologically accurate. Because when we die, 
If we die before Jesus comes, the Lord does not take our body. He takes what? Our soul. He takes our soul because that's what's happened in the unnatural act of death. So we are not Darwinian, materialist, atheistic evolutionists. Uh, We do not believe that death is a part of life. It's an enemy. It's an intruder. Death is not natural. It doesn't show up in Genesis 1 and 2. It shows up in Genesis 3. And it's the curse that comes because of sin. The day of your disobedience, the day you eat of it, you shall die. And we find out that actually it's three deaths that come because of sin as enemies into this world. One is eternal death. The word death is the word thanatos. It means a radical separation. A separation of things that were not made to be separated. Hell is not natural. Hell is created for those who rebelled against the Lord, the devil and his angels, and all who would not follow him, the Lord of glory. God made us to fellowship with him forever. Eternal death is not natural. It is a curse of sin. Separate from me. Depart from me. You workers of lawlessness, I never knew you. Secondly, we're born dead in our sins. Our sin nature separates us from God. Now, that doesn't separate God from dealing with us, but we are separated from an intimacy with God. Now, we still have the Imago Dei. We know there's a God. You don't meet five-year-old atheists. They got to work at it. They have to work at it immediately. One of my favorite stories, just right up here in North Alabama, is uh, the young lady that was a member of uh, what is now a PCA church uh, up in uh, Tuscumbia. And uh, her name was Helen Keller. And when they broke through with the sign language in the palm of her hand, because she couldn't see, she couldn't speak, she couldn't hear. And she was shut up in that silence. And when Ann Sullivan broke through, they spelled water. That was the first thing. And then they went to another, and they went to another, and it almost became like a cascade itself of word after word. And finally, Ann Sullivan got to the word God, and she said, do you know him? And she signed back into Ann Sullivan's head. Oh, yes. I just didn't have a word for him. We are born imago Deo. We know there's a God. We know that there is a God that exists. And the only way that we will, uh, the only way that is open to deny God is to be professing to be wise. They become fools by what? Suppressing the knowledge of God in unrighteousness. The motivation is not a lack of information. The motivation is moral. In unrighteousness, we suppress the knowledge of who God is shouting to us from general revelation outside of us and inside of us through conscience because we are made in the image of God. So we're born spiritually dead in our sin because of the curse of sin. Thirdly, the one that we're focused upon right now, how we step into eternity and how we step to the other side, death, the door of death, that that um, that also is the word separation. It is the separation of two things that were not made to be separated. You'll remember two weeks ago, we saw that when Adam was created, he was a corpse from the dust. And that he was not living until God breathed into that body the breath of life. Now, the, 
Adam's body was not a car that carried the passenger of his soul or his spirit. Adam's body and that soul that was breathed in is like two threads in one cloth. That's the best way to look at it. And therefore, the rendering of the soul from the body, which is what physical death is, the rendering from the soul from the body is, in fact, unnatural. And therefore, it appears in Genesis 3. Now, why, how do we get this definition, definition that death is the separation of the soul from the body? Well, if you look at James chapter 2, here is one of many passages that give us some insight into it. James chapter 2, look with me at verse 26 at the end of the chapter. In the context of dealing with uh, saving faith manifested by works, he says in verse uh, 26, For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, if you don't mind, I'm not going to deal with that theological issue of, of the right relationship of faith and works. What I wanted to go to is what he is using as a illustration. What is dead? The body is dead without what? Without the soul, without the spirit. Now, pastor, are you telling me that we are body and soul? Yes, I am. Uh, now, pastor, I heard people telling me we're body, soul, and spirit. Well, I would encourage you to just really think through that. Um, I believe what the Bible teaches is that soul and spirit are referring to the same thing, but emphasizing two different dynamics. A lot of times, in fact, that which is made in the image of God, that which makes you, you, is sometimes called soul and its turned relationship to God's spirit by its enlivening presence within you that brings life. Sometimes it's called mind. Sometimes it's called heart. That we have multiple terms in the Bible that are used to refer to that part of you that is made in the image of God. Your body comes in the image of your parents. For God is a spirit. He has no bodily parts. And therefore, when your body is not an image bearer of God, your body bears the image of your parents. I mean, every every morning I look in the mirror and I said, mirror, mirror on the wall, I am my daddy after all. And uh, it's amazing how this thing just keeps going further and further in that direction. But your what makes you what is made in the image of God that makes you you that body without that soul without that spirit is a corpse. So let's go back to creation. When it, when in creation Adam was formed from the dust of the ground, but he was a corpse at that point until God breathed into that body the breath of life, that he became a living soul. That's what happens. Now, what happens at death? It is the unnatural separation of that soul from the body. That is the unnatural separation of it. And so the soul departs from the body, which is why Jesus tells us, do not fear those that can kill the body. Fear him who alone can kill both body and Soul. There's only one that can do that. So what is death? Death is that ordained consequence, uh, not only of spiritual death and eternal death, but also physical death. That's why the prayer was right. If I should die before I wake, the assumption in that prayer is that your soul has departed. Therefore, I pray, Lord, you, my soul, do take into that glorious intermediate state that we're going to cover in about three weeks. That glorious intermediate state, absent when you die, absent from the what? Body. What's absent from the body? The soul present with the Lord. What's present with the Lord? My soul he has took to himself. 
So that's what we are learning from the word of God. Now, today, today, while you are still living, is the day to deal with death. Biblically understand it and embrace God's solution to it. And embrace the joy of the assurance of God's solution to it. Today, death, let's deal with it while living. Not in the times of dying alone. But now while you're living. Harry, why? Don't you believe in deathbed conversions? Sure, I can show you one. It's on the cross. I can show you one in the Bible. It's only it's the cross. But it's the only one in the Bible. Here's the fact. You basically die the way you live. I have seen deathbed conversions that I think were real. And I praise God for it. And I can believe in deathbed conversions because I've got one in the Bible. But I agree with Bishop Ryle in his commentary on that conversion. Here is a deathbed conversion. There is one. So we lose not hope. But only one. Lest we be presumptuous. The Bible is very basically clear. By and large, men and women die the way they live. Don't wait till you're dying to deal with the reality of death and God's solution to death. I have people ask me time and time again, Pastor, aren't you upset when people come to Jesus? Aren't you upset when they come to Jesus at the last moment? Doesn't that upset you? And I said, yes, it upsets me. And they said, well, I can understand why. They just get all this fun and then at the last minute they convert. I said, oh, no, no. (laughs) I didn't get upset because of that. I get upset because I know all that they missed because they didn't get converted to the end. What they had was what you and I studied last summer. Emptiness. Vanity. That's what they had. Oh, how I wish they had known him in their life and not just at their death. So we want to deal with death while we're living. There's another reason Ecclesiastes that I just referred to tells us that man knows not his time. But you do know there is a time. That's why Ecclesiastes also says God has put eternity in the heart of a man. We know my series is important. Eternity in biblical perspective. Every man knows it. Every woman knows it. Every boy and every girl knows it. That door whereby we step into eternity is death. On the other side of it, there is no work of grace. It is appointed unto men once to die and then the judgment. So today is the day of salvation from sin, death, hell, and the grave. Therefore, today is the day we need to understand it. Not only its origin, not only its definition that we have done, but how do I know that everybody I minister to, everybody I know will die if Jesus doesn't come back first? Because Romans 5 says to me, death spread To all men. Now why does it spread to all men? All men. Couldn't there be just some man 
who would take the word of God, he's born into this world, and in thought, word, and deed, not sin? Isn't there a possibility that there can be another Adam who will do what the first Adam shall do? Well, from the sons of Adam, the answer is no. But from God's gift of a second Adam, the answer is yes. But from the sons of Adam, no. Why? Because they're born with a sin nature from the original sin by Adam himself. And why are they born with the original sin by the sin that Adam created? Because they were there in Adam when he sinned. From divine decree, and by the way, I'm now quoting a Puritan. I want to give credit to where, of course, he's not still around to hold me accountable, but I want to be uh, ethical on this. So let me quote Thomas Godwin. From divine decree, from divine perspective, from divine, I'm paraphrasing, but it's, it's him. From divine decree and from divine perspective, from the eyes of God. There have only been two men that ever existed. Adam and the second Adam, Jesus. In the first Adam, we were all in him. When he sinned, we sinned. Therefore, we Sons and daughters of Adam are born with a sin nature, and therefore we sin, and we die, because we died in Adam. There's another Adam, in whom are the elect of God, and in this Adam who never sinned in thought, word, or deed, but with perfection grew in the wisdom, in wisdom, stature, favor with God, and favor with man. In that Adam, all of those in him live. So, my dear friends, what I have just rejected for you is the doctrines of Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism, that every man or woman is born as their own Adam. No, we are born as sons and daughters of Adam. And when Adam sinned, we sinned. And when the curse of sin fell upon Adam, the curse of sin fell upon us. And when we are born, we are born with that sin nature. Therefore, we sin. It is not you are born la tabla rosa, you are a blank tablet, and then sin. You are born a sinner, and you sin. And you had already, in Adam, participated in Adam's sin. He is the federal head. God established a covenant with him and all of his seed. And when he, when he sinned, we sinned. If you'll take your Bibles and go with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. I'll tell you what, I'm going to reverse this from what I planned on doing. Uh, just, uh, if you don't mind, go first to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's go there first. We'll go from the... A simple summation to the more in-depth explanation. First Corinthians chapter 15. Of course, it's that great uh, exposition of um, of the resurrection. And in this uh, glorious uh, exposition, notice what it what it says. Uh, if you'll go down with me to verse 20. But in fact. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That means there's going to come, if he's the first fruits, what is it? You got some more coming with him. Who are those coming with him? Those who are his are going to be resurrected unto eternal life. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now watch. 
for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. Who is the man that brought death with his sin? Come on. Adam, who is the man who with his righteousness and atoning death and resurrection has brought life? Jesus, the second Adam. So the next verse goes into further explanation for you. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, all die. In Adam, we died because we were in Adam when he sinned. So in Adam, we die. All die. So also... In Christ shall all be made alive. All in Christ shall be made alive. Now watch. Can, can I, I wish I had a blackboard here. Adam, second Adam. Adam, all what? This is good. Come on. Die. Second Adam, all what? Live. Now, the question is... What do you think people try to teach from that? Come on. Come on, y'all are smart. That everybody saved. Was everybody lost under Adam? And everybody is saved under Jesus. Yes. But here's what you got to realize. Two different Adams, two different alls. The all of Adam is humanity. The all of Christ is the elect. The elect of God. When Jesus was going to the cross, what does he say? Father, all whom you've given me. Who did the Father give him? The elect. All whom you've given me, I will lose not one. But raise him up. I'll be the first fruits. I'll raise them up on the last day. Two Adams, two alls. The all of Adam, humanity, dead. Spiritually dead. Physically dead. Facing eternal death. The all in Christ, the elect, live. And even though they die physically, shall they live forever. Now... Just to substantiate that, go to the next verse with me. So all in Christ, so notice what he says, uh, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, who is he going to raise to life eternal? Those who are Christ. Those who belong to Christ. Who are those who belong to Christ? The elect of God. Now, go with me to Romans 8. I realize this is like Bible school. It's good. It's good. Good. This is good. This is Sunday night. Night church. Turn in your Bibles. Or turn on your Bibles. Go with me to Romans 8. Then we're going to get to Romans 5 and then we'll close. Romans 8. Now, what does Romans 8 tell us? Romans 8, which we're going to come back to um, next week. But just one, just one area I want you to look with me. Romans 8, 28. I know it's familiar, but look with me. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. So we know, here's something you can take to the bank of truth. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. How many here love God? Okay. All things, doesn't all things are good. All things work together for good. Okay. Now, why do we know that? Besides the fact God has said it. For those who are called according to his purpose. Well, who are those who love God? Those who are called according to his purpose. 
For those whom he foreknew. Now notice it's not what he foreknew. It's whom he foreknew. The word know means loving intimacy. Before we existed, God lovingly placed his intimacy upon you. He's not what he foresaw. It's whom he foreknew. By those whom he foreknew, he did what to these whom he placed his love upon before they existed. Before they, before they were born, he predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. That is to be his. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. He's the firstborn. He is the firstfruits. Now, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he also called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So here is this unbreakable chain. God says, all things work together for those who love me. Who are those who love me? Those who I first love. I don't first love them when Jesus comes into the world. I first love them before they existed, before I even sent my son. I knew them intimately, personally, lovingly. Then I decreed all of those things. Those people that shared the gospel with you, that was no accident. That was the divine hand of God and the bloodhound of heaven that was chasing you down. That is exactly what was taking place. I have ordained that you would be brought to eternal life. And those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Now, in time, he called you. In time, he justified you. In time, he has brought you to himself. Then we step into what we're studying, eternity. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Uh, he, ju- um, he uh, called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified. You'll notice that those he starts off with are the those he ends up with. I lose not one. Five unbreakable links of sovereign grace in our life. Working through human agency. Changing emotions and minds. We're not robots. He's working on us. And this God who determined to save us worked on us so that we determined to love him. And to say no to our sin. By his grace. It wasn't our determination that made him love us. It was his love that changed us to love him. And he has secured our our salvation that we are justified. So don't stop there with me. Go to the next step with me. Now, I'm not going all the way to verse 39. I am going to stop myself. But I will go to verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, you know who can be Who's going to be against you? And all those who love Satan, the world, the flesh, the devil are against you. But in comparison to God, who are they? Who is Potiphar's wife in comparison to the God of glory? Who is Satan in comparison to the God of glory? It's not that God is God and Satan's the bad God and we're going to flip the switch. There's only one God. Satan is a pretender greater than us, but greater is he that is in us than this one who is in the world. Now, that means we got people, we got everything against us. Joseph had it against him. It's against you. It's incessant. And don't get so arrogant. You think you're smarter. You can, but your resolve is greater. No, no. This is your hope. Your hope is in God who is greater. I mean, the illustration I use is the boy that get bullied every day on the way to school. And he's scared to go to school until his big brother, who played football for uh, you know, one of these football powerhouses like East Carolina University. He's a left tackle, six foot eight, 340 pounds. He comes down and says to his brother, little brother, you want me to walk you to school? You think he's scared that day? I, I'm not trying to be trivial, but the bullies in comparison to him, who are they? 
our adversaries in comparison to God? Who are they? If God be for us, who can be against us? One little breath shall fail them. One little breath. Now, not my breath. I can huff and puff and I can't blow that house down. But if God just exhales, it's all over. If God be for us, who can be against us? Now, watch. He, here's how much he's for you. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Now, wait, wait. He who did not spare his own son, but sent him to the cross for who? Us. Who? All. And you can't divorce it from the context. Those whom he has called, known, called, predestined. So we got a savior who has an atoning death that is exquisitely sufficient for all of humanity, but is unstoppably, gloriously effective for his people. And he will lose not one of them. And if you don't believe it, just look where we go. Look where we go. Don't stop here. If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's who? It is God who what? Now go back. Go back. He knew him. He knew us. He predestined us. He called us. He justified us. How? His son, his son with a with an atoning death that is sufficient for any and all, but efficiently, assuredly wins and secures the salvation of all of his. None are lost. No, not one. Therefore. It is not that God votes for me and Satan votes against me and I declare the deciding vote. When God votes and Satan votes, there is no tie. And I am a victor in Christ. And I am in Christ and live even though I was born in Adam to death. In Christ made alive and gloriously have the triumph over sin and death and hell and the grave. Well, if you would go to Romans five. I got two minutes. Romans five. And then I'll just close in prayer. Here we go. Just a couple of thoughts here. Slip down to verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Now now that we've done this, you can answer these questions. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Who was that? And death through sin. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men. All of his seed. All who were in him. All of humanity. That's how it spreads to us. Because all sinned. We sinned in him. Original sin, and now we sin like him, actual sin. Because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who are sinning. Their sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. In other words, Adam sinned under special revelation. Their sins are sins against general revelation until Moses, where we get the word of God and the law of God. But watch, the free gift is not like the the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for the many. So Adam to his all, Christ to his all, that many that belong to Christ. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin for the judgment following one trespass. That's Adam brought what? 
condemnation. Underline that word. But the free gift following many trespasses, that is Jesus redeeming us from all our sins. That free gift following many trespasses brought what? When he paid for our sins, what did it bring? What is condemnation? Give me the legal word for that. Guilty. Justification. Give me the legal word for that. Innocent. Not forgiven. Yes, you are forgiven. But God went beyond that. You are innocent. Because when Jesus went to the cross, your sins were imputed to him. You're forgiven. He paid for them. His righteousness was imputed to you, so you're more than forgiven, you are accepted, you are justified. The verdict is innocent. It is innocent because of what the one man did for you, and when he did it, you were in him. Just like you were in Adam when he sinned, by God's decree, you were in Christ. And because you were in Christ, Christ's redeeming work removed all your sins and the verdict is innocent. For if because of one man's trespass, death, what? Reigned. Death is a dictator. That's why we who are born with the sin nature move from original sin to actual sin because sin is reigning. Now, God's common grace keeps us from being as evil as we would be. Now, folks, you've got to understand this. I can't remember his name. I ought to remember his name. But there was a witness who lost his whole family in the Holocaust. And he was brought to bear witness against Adolf Eichmann, the personification of evil. And when he stood and looked him in the eye, this man, this Jewish survivor, Chuck Colson records this for you. This Jewish survivor fell on his knees and began to weep and couldn't say a word. When they picked him up, they said, what's wrong? Don't be intimidated. He said, oh, I'm not intimidated. I looked at him. And realized, I'm him. And the answer is the grace of God. God's common grace that restrains us from being as evil as we would be. God's redeeming grace that transforms us and saves us. So that we are no longer under the reign of sin. Now we are under the dominion and reign of what? Grace. So here's what he says. He says that um, um, for if because of one man's trespasses, death reigned through one man, much more uh, will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Well, the rest is a continued recapitulation of that. And I'll give it to your reading because I'm out of time. But deal with this matter of death today, right now. We've been dealing with the grief that has come from a celebrity death, the sudden death of a Kobe Bryant and his 13-year-old daughter. Now, praise God, there's some evidences with his fiasco in 2001 or three. I forgot what it was, that God did something in his life through a man who began to bring the testimony of Christianity to him. And everyone says there was a marked change, and I pray so. But I just couldn't help but remembering the book of Ecclesiastes. Man knows not his time. How many times has he made that trip in that helicopter? I read an article about it. I even commented on it on social media. The writer in New York Times really did a very interesting coverage of this. There was one place where you could view the wreck, the closest and greatest advantage. It was a PCA church, Church of the Canyon. The pastor is Bob Majerkus. And they just said, well, today we're going to try to live the gospel and hope that we'll have an opportunity to share the gospel. 
because of all the people that were coming there. And then they opened up a prayer service as he preached on Genesis that day. It was the Lord's day. But they opened up the parking lot. They opened up their place. They brought water. They opened up bathrooms. Here's what two quotes from that article. A house of worship. A cathedral of sports across the street separated the two separated by a strand of a highway suddenly connected by irrational happenstance. The cathedral of a sports academy, a house of worship, a road separating them. Now connected by the irrationality of happenstance of the sovereign hand of God reminding us to be ready. Oh, how I pray he was ready. Some evidence he was for which I praise God. But be ready. Man knows not his time. Then the second quote. At the church, people were coming. At the Mamba Sports Academy, people were leaving. Because there was nothing left for them to do. Leaving the Cathedral of Sports, coming to the church of the Lord. Folks, we don't wait for that day for them to come. Before that day, we cross the road to them. Seek and save the lost. For today is the day of salvation. What is God's solution to this death? I am so glad you ask. I'll tell you next Sunday night. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the victory of Jesus over that and the glorious texts that give us a sense of that victory that we can yet consider. And then, Father, I pray that you would hear our glorious praise that you give us sense in a fallen world. And more than that, you give salvation. God, we don't know who are yours, but we do know we spread the seed over the whole field. Because sometimes it's, we think it's rocky ground, it's good ground. So God, you do that great work of salvation. We will plant, we will water. Oh God, give the increase. And we'll give you the praise because in Jesus, the sting of death has been removed. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reeder, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.